The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. majesty of the great Madre range go men, their pasts buried in silent secrecy, their futures hidden in the mystery of adventure, men drawn together in their search for gold, Dog, soldier of fortune, Howard, the old-timer, Curtin, the youngster, and Cody, the intruder. These are the men who tried to tap the treasure of the Sierra Madre, men with an oath on their lips and muscles in their arms but men with greed in their hearts, ready to break their backs, to sell their very souls for gold, fighting shoulder to shoulder against the forces of nature, only to find their greatest enemy is human nature. Shut your trap! Shut up or I'll smash your head flat! Ah! Throw it! Without me, you two would die here more miserable than rats! Leave him alone. Can't you see it? The old man's nuts! <laughs> You're so dumb you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet! <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, I don't want to keep that dame waiting, whoever she is. We wounded this mountain. It's our duty to close her wounds. The least we can do to show our gratitude for the wealth she's given us. You talk about that mountain like it was a real woman. You've been a lot better to me than any woman I ever knew. I know exactly what you mean. You want to take it all for yourself and cut me out. I know you for what you are. For a long time I've had my suspicions about you, and now I know I've been right. So that's your stinking game, is it informing? I knew you was an informer. I knew it all the time. Take a look down that mountain. This means all our funerals. What's that? I'm writing what I'm thinking. May the Lord be with us. And that soldiers, they're bandits.
right, guys. Welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo. And I'm Kyle. Kyle, today we'll be talking about um, one of the all-time classic movies, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948. That's right, Jimbo. But Kyle, first, you have a question for me, don't you? I don't don't know. Should I do a question or should I just roast you? Just roast me. Uh, Yeah, yeah. You know, the real answer is you're going to do both. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Which Avatar movie would you buy, Kyle? <laughs> All right, so we better, we better... So Kyle, last night, uh, messaged me. He's like, hey, uh, I got a, a copy of uh, Avatar 2, The Way of the Water, on digital. You want the code? You can get it. I was like, yeah, I haven't bought it yet, so sure. And so last night he sent me this code, and I'm trying to punch it in. It's not working. And so... Uh, Kyle comes over today, and, and Kyle's like, yeah, just go on to Movies Anywhere, whatever, and type in this code. So I go to type in the code, and it gives me the 4K version of Avatar 1. Yeah. And I said, Kyle, I said, this gave me Avatar 1. He's like, oh, it should be Avatar Way of the Water. I said, are you sure, Kyle, that you didn't buy Avatar 1 and not Avatar 2? He's like, no, no, maybe it's the flip side of the paper that the uh, code's on the other side. Yeah, yeah got, surely, surely. like the Avatar to the Deluxe Edition. Yeah, yeah, how to get the Ultimate Collector's Edition, because right. I'm the Ultimate Collector, obviously. So, and, Kyle, would you explain what, what happened? So, I pulled up on I pull up, I pull up my previous orders on Amazon, and I see Avatar Ultimate Collector's Edition. Not Avatar Way of the Water, Avatar 1. So... <laughs> I remember I looked at Avatar The Way of the Water, the Blu-ray, 4K Blu-ray, and it had like a black like slipcover copy thing, and I was like, oh, it's like 30 bucks, cool, I'll buy that. But then I saw one version that said Avatar, and it was $33. I'm like, why is it $3 more? Oh, because it's the Ultimate Collector's Edition. Well, obviously I should buy that version, and I didn't realize I bought Avatar 1 because <laughs> I was... Idiot. I'm I make it dumb sometimes. Everyone makes dumb sometimes. I make dumb sometimes too. And uh so I bought Avatar One on four K Blu ray. Uh and uh now I don't have the Avatar Two copy. <laughs> yeah, so now he owes me a copy of the digital Avatar Two is what I'm saying. That's, that's oh Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Okay, Kyle, the question is um in this film, uh for those this is my first time watching this film, um, that Kyle suggested. So uh, in this film, they do go hunt for gold. Mm-hmm. Kyle? Oh, do you, oh, you have a question for me. Okay, here's, here well, it is. Yeah, here's, what, here's, here's, I make sure. I make sure. I make sure. Well, I know you, you skipped over back. What was you going to say? I thought you were already so happy to just burn me. You were like, ah, I need to just you know, burn through the. No, question. I was going to do a question. Okay, okay, you need a question about. So, when they start digging after their ten mile, uh, ten day walk or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and they first get done, and they ask how much is done, and they said, oh, it's what four thousand a piece or something mm-hmm. ounces or whatever. How much gold or how much money would it have taken you to leave the mountain? Because obviously they get greedy and they want more and more and more where there's like nine burrows full of this gold by the time they leave. How much money would you have quit sooner than what they did? Oh, boy. Um, man. Because... This, this, I mean, it, hang on. Let me, t- uh, let me tell you. Let me tell you what they uh, ended up with here. So, since it's, this film is set basically in 1925, mm-hmm. at the end, the, they get about $35,000 in gold. They have is equal to about $600,000 in 2023. In 1925, in Mexico, 35000 U.S. dollars was worth about 75,000 pesos, and the average annual income was only about 1,000 pesos a year. Wow. So, they have 75 years... Uh, 
worth of living for at the end of yeah. their time. So. Yeah, I mean, essentially they're they're both they're all leaving with about a quarter million dollars, about half a million dollars a piece almost. Right. In in rough in rough currency. Um gosh, and like I said, like that money goes even further in Mexico than it does in America. Um so would you yeah. would you have quit earlier? No, I don't think I would have. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't necessarily think I would. I probably would have quit um, precisely when the actual the old timer of, of Walter, uh, Walter Hudson would have said, I don't think there's going to be much gold left. I probably would have quit then. That's probably my mindset with it. Where it's like, until I'm told, like, there's no more to get, I probably would that's, I probably would have kept going until the end. Um, I think this movie is all about greed, too. And I don't know that much. I'm much better than the protagonist in this film. Is that like, no, I'd probably go in for all I can get because... It's all I'm ever going to get at that point. <laughs> like, you know, this is all the work I got to do, and I'll just get it to it's done. Yeah. So how, that's probably as far as I would go. I think as far as I could. Uh, how, what about you, Jimbo? How far are you? Well, let's go? face the facts. I'm not making the journey to even go look for the gold. Okay, I'm not, that's a long journey that they had to do up those mountains. I'm not even going to do that. That's that's. But I, I guess without they had a guarantee. No, yeah. I guess they had, yeah. I guess they had nothing to lose at this point. Yeah, yeah. I think when the guy wins the thing, he won two hundred dollars, and then he got the three hundred from the other. Guy. So he had five hundred dollars. I think I would have left then. Yeah, you know, what I mean, and went and found stable work somewhere. But yeah, and also me that, that I mean, that's what this film is about is about you know people who are down their luck find a you know a financial windfall basically like that, and then they slowly betray another, betray one another um, because they well I say they only one really betrays yeah Humphrey <laughs> Bogart's character Dobbs, um, but yeah, this movie, that's what this movie is all about kind of about greed and how uh, that kind of you know as soon as you get some you immediately want more. And how terrible that can well, be. Well, you know, it also, you know? I think, has the parallels to, like, let's say, somebody that hits the lottery. Mm. Um, most of the people that hit the lottery end up broke within a year or two. Yeah. So I think you can see some of the parallels of this, too. Um, but, Kyle, let's go ahead and take it away. All right, Jimbo. Uh, we have, the, once again, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, released on January 14th of 1948. It uh, is directed by John Houston. Um, written by John Houston for the adaption for the screenplay, and the original novel is written by B. Tavern. Composed by Max Steiner, and cinematographer was Ted D. McCord, as Ted McCord in the original credits. Budget for the film was $3 million. Adjusting for inflation, that'd be about $37.8 million today. Opening weekend, it made about $144,000. Adjusting for inflation, that'd be about $1.8 million today. And then gross in U.S. and Canada, which is basically worldwide for 1943, 1948, I mean, um, that they made about $5 million. And just for inflation, that'd be about $63.3 million. So a, a, a pretty well-rounded success overall. You know, not, not, not huge money, but certainly good enough for the time anyways. So that's good there on there. Quick little plot summary of the film. Fred C. Dobbs and Bob Curtin, both down in their luck in Tampico, in Tampico, Mexico, Tampico, Mexico, Tampico, Mexico, there we go, in 1925, meet up with a grizzled prospector named Howard and decide to join him in a search of gold in the wilds of central Mexico. Though enormous, through enormous difficulties, they eventually succeed in finding gold, but bandits, the element, and most especially greed threaten to turn their success into disaster. Okay, Kyle, you ready for a story? Ready for a story, Jim, go for it. I have been to Tampico, Mexico. Awesome. Yes. Did you enjoy um, it? Yeah. Well, me and my wife, before we were married, we went on a uh, church group and we helped build a church down there. Oh. So in Tampico, it is very beautiful down there. Um, we were uh, digging six, like, or 13 six by six foot and six foot deep holes. 
oh, for wow. like the, the the you know the foundation of the church or whatever. Uh, but yeah, the river there, they still have the fisher boats where they throw the nets overboard. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And drag them in. Um, very beautiful. Um, very very nice, friendly people. So I uh, it's a memory that always stick with me. If I can find some of my pictures, maybe I'll post them. Um, online when this releases. That's really cool. You know, that's a, that's a life event for you right there, for yep. sure. Awesome. Okay, um, moving on to some of the awards this film won. This one, this this is a kind of a, a sweeping movie for the year it came out in many respects, so I'm going to go through someone here. Um, we're going to go through a more recent reward. In 2012, it was added to the Online and Film, to- to- the Online Film and Television Association Film Hall of Fame. In 1950, it was nominated for a BAFTA Award for the best film from any source in the USA. In 1949, in the Academy Awards, it won three of the four Oscars it was nominated for, including Best Director for John Huston, his only Oscar win, despite being nominated like 15 times over his career. And there was also the Best Actor in Supporting Role, which was given to Walter Huston, John Huston's dad, John Huston's dad, <laughs> which is incredible. Um, I think he also directed, his, uh, there's another movie where he directed his son into an Oscar win, too. I think he's the only director to ever direct his both um his father and his son into Oscar oh, wow. If I, I have to look that up um, while we're doing this podcast. And also, Best Writing Screenplay, once again awarded to John Houston, and it was nominated for Best Picture. Best uh, only Oscar wins for this entire film. He won two Oscars for this one film, specifically. So, not just one. Yeah, Oscar. it's also uh, um, Houston, the father uh, of the director, and he won for the best supporting actor, and John won for the best director. This was the actually the first father and son win, win ever. ever. Yeah, I think the I come the other one was. I, I believe it's happened before. I haven't again since then. Yeah. Um, next up, we have the Golden Globes, where it won the Golden Globe for best winning actor to John Stad Walter, and best director to John Huston, and it tied for best picture with um, Johnny Belinda. Johnny Johnny Belinda. There we go. You ever watch that? Never have you. Nope. Had to listen Put it on the list. Put it on the list. Backlog that is ever growing. <laughs> 1949, in the Writers Guild of America, it won the Best Written American Western Award to John Huston. Best Written American Western, that's just basically best movie of 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> what else were you doing? <laughs> uh, sorry, that's, 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 not, that's not fair. <laughs> True, <laughs> but not fair. <laughs> in 1948, there was a National Border Review. It was um, added to the top ten films of that year. It won Best Screenplay and Best Actor. Once again, words to John's dad, Walter. <laughs> in 1948, in the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, it won the Best Film Award and Best Director Award. And then also it won the award for um, best score, or to Max Steiner for the film. Technical details of the film: this film has a runtime of 126 minutes. Sound mix is mono, recorded for the RCA sound system of the original time. And color and film: this is a black and white film. And aspect ratio is 1.37 by one. Film length is a whopping 3,459.5 meters long. And uh, interesting fact: this was actually one of the um, few films of the era filmed on location, and uh, and uh, in Sonora, Mexico, for five months span, starting from January seventh in nineteen forty eight, and uh, actually filmed for probably five months. I had that in another source somewhere else uh, back. Um, I did some online research for this, but I don't have a paper here. But apparently, it was like five months shooting time, and that went way over time. Too, might have to ask me that in trivia too. But I remember the um, oh gosh, the the executive at Warner Brothers were upset at the time about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have stuff about that later on. Moving on, we're going to go to the cast of the film here, um, and we have uh, a pretty short cast because we only have like three main actors. Everyone else is kind of 
on the sidelines of it anyways. Um, but of course, we have the legendary Humphrey Bogart playing the character of Fred C. Dobbs. Um, Humphrey Bogart, of course, most well-known, of course, for movies like Casablanca and Maltese Falcon um, and from 1942 and 1941, respectively. Um, and also the, uh, the, the, the Barefoot's... Uh, Gosh, the Barefoot Contessa and films like that as well. So, Did you like Casablanca or this movie better? Oh boy, um, I think I enjoy Casablanca better as a fun time kind of movie to a degree. I, I just enjoy that kind of it's a lot more fun dialogue going on with it. This one was well written too, but this film is a lot more uh, a little bit more dark and <laughs> serious to a degree. Even though there are moments of levity as well. Um, I like the Maltese Falcon a lot. I gotta go back and revisit that sometime. Next up, we have Walter Houston playing the character of Howard. Um, Walter Houston, of course, also knows, also known you know, being John Houston's father, the director of the film. Um, Walter Houston's also in such films as Dodsworth in 1936, The Furies in 1950, and Abraham Lincoln in 1930. And he stole this movie. He stole the show in this. Movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was also like the inspiration. Um, <laughs> Like, for me, like, my main kind of thing when I think of uh, Walter Houston is, uh, is well, because he didn't play the role, but, it, like, Stinky Pete in Toy Story 2. Because that's where he's basically recycled. The, they basically recycled Howard's character into Toy Story 2, Stinky Pete. That's, that's, he almost has the exact same, like, um, prospector dance in that yeah. film that he does in this movie here. But that's the first place I saw it was in Toy Story 2, because millennial. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I, that's what I think every time I see Walter Hughes in this film. It's true, though. It's, it's, it's Stinky Pete right there. <laughs> Except less evil. Stinky, uh, <laughs> Howard in this film is a good guy. Then next up, we have uh, Tim Holt playing uh, Curtin. Uh, Tim Holt was also in the film The, Magnific- the Magnificent Ambrosians. Ambersons in 1942. It's not Ambrosians. Am- Ambersons in 1942. And also The Monster That Challenged the World. Next up, we have Bruce Bennett playing the character of Cody. Bruce Bennett was also in the film Mildred Peace in 1945. Then we have Barton McLean playing Pat McCormick. Barton McLean was also in the film The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey with Bogart in 1941. Then we have Alfonso Bedoya playing Alfonso Bedoya playing the character of Gold Hat. Alfonso was also in the film The Black Rose in 1950. Then we have Jose Torve playing the character of Pablo. Jose was also in the film Two Mules for Sister Shara, that Clint Eastwood film mm-hmm. in 1970. Then we have Margarita Luna playing the character of Poncho. Uh, Mar- Luna was also in the film The Wild Bunch in 1969. Next up, we have a young Robert Blake, unfortunately in Brownface, playing the character of the Mexican boy selling lottery tickets to Humphrey Bogart. Um, he was also in the movie, of course, Lost Highway, 1997. Had an amazing career on his own right. He was also in the TV show Beretta. Yeah. And he's also a murderer, so we don't talk, we don't talk about him. Still, good film career. Murderer, bad. <laughs> so he's a, Crispin Wall was a good wrestler, typical, but he's typical, also a murderer. Typical so. actor. Oh, <laughs> typical <wow>. wrestler. <laughs> Sorry, wow. That's okay. real bad. That's real bad. Never mind. I'm going to try that back immediately. Crispin Wall. No, we cannot topic. It's not this podcast. Wow. Ooh. Okay. Jimbo, why don't you give me that can of worms? <laughs> because I knew you would fall right into the, tra- the trap. You know, I'm going to buy you one of them Chinese finger traps one day just to see you put it on and be like, I can't Kyle, get it don't off. put your fingers in here. <laughs> and then I'm going to take you to a buffet. You, you, you won't be able to eat. You just put a You'll... post-it note like, don't put fingers in this. And then, Yay. And I'm going to take you to a buffet and you be like, I can't get it out. <laughs> Just crying. Uh, All right, should both take some weeks on trip. Yeah, crying. so basically, you got uh, Humphrey Bogart. Who's uh, does it ever even say why he's down there in Mexico? 
No, no, no reason why they ended up down there, but no, like, you know, yeah, general yeah. misfortune were like. There's like him and then uh, what's his name? Uh, Curtin. Yeah, Curtin. Yeah, yeah. them two are just, they're both just basically bums down in Mexico. It's mm-hmm. kind of weird. And then Bogart's always going up to this guy, hey, mister, can you help a fellow American out? Mm-hmm. Uh, two pesos or whatever. He does it three times. And I told Kyle, I said, Kyle, you need to pull up this Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon. It's called Eight Ball Bunny. Eight Ball Bunny. Yeah. I think it's called. We'll have to share that yeah. on the Facebook page. I'll put page. it on the Facebook page. But it's, um, it is basically uh, a Bugs, a Bugs Bunny, Bunny where he's trying to help this penguin get down to the South America. And three times throughout that movie, Humphrey Bogart shows up and asks, for, hey, can you help a fellow American out? <laughs> so Mimicking the way, like, you know, uh, I feel like this is a great, like, study film for, like, understanding, like, intent through, like, how they've written the dialogue and how characters' mannerisms affect how kind of characters they are. Um, but yes, uh, yes, the same guy in the opening of this film in the first like fifteen minutes. Yes, is the same guy for money three times. He doesn't realize he's even asking the same guy each time because every single time he just hands out his hand and he just looks at his hand and waits for the guy to give him money. He never looks at the guy's face. He doesn't realize he's the same guy yeah. three times. So look, you've asked me three times. <laughs> yeah. It's like you've asked me three times today, yeah. today. <laughs> in the morning and when he was getting his shoes shined and then. Yeah. <laughs> We read the papers on one. Yeah. So. Yeah, but then Bugs um, Bunny recreates that too. Have Humphrey Bogart show up three times, ask Bugs Bunny for money, yeah. and then eventually Bugs Bunny is like, "It's your problem now." No, he says, "He says, no, can you help no, fellow no, American?" Gonna... He gives him the penguin. Yeah. Um, this has one of those famous movie quotes that's often misquoted, and it's also spoofed. I believe in Blazing Saddles, which I'll get to. But the movie's line, badges, we ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Was voted as the number 36 movie quote by the American Film Institute out of 100, which I always wondered where it came from. I knew it from Blazing Saddles, but uh, now I know where the original came from, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool, too. And also, it, like, it, it's right up there with uh, the the Luke, I am your father, as like the most misquoted thing ever. When the original is like, no, I am your father, is the revelation. This one, too, like, badges, we don't need no standing badges, is never said in the film, like, in that kind of direct quotation. Right. You know, but so that's the way, that's one everyone remembers, you know. Yeah, sure. uh, there were there were scenes in which uh, Walter Houston had to speak fluent Spanish, a language he did not know off camera. To fill this need, John Houston hired a Mexican person to record the lines, and then the elder Houston memorized them so well that many assumed he knew the language like a native. And sure enough, if you, yeah, you'd be right there with it. If you watch the film, you just you would just assume he's right. a fluent Spanish speaker. And the yeah. funny thing is, is he's. He's speaking it, but he's still speaking it with like his accent of the American. It's pretty funny, yeah. but he's speaking it. You know, what I mean, I yeah, thought it was. That's really also the part where like he says it so well. They're like, yeah, he's, it, it's it's more of like it's like a mistake that like task failed so successfully. He didn't learn Spanish, but he learned to say Spanish so well. Everyone assumes he knows right. it. <laughs> uh, Walter Houston was also persuaded by his son to add authenticity to his role to perform without his false teeth. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Uh, we already talked about Robert Blake. Uh, it does give him like an. Oh, by the way, the man, the man who Dobbs is begging for money three times early in the film is actually the director, John Houston. <laughs> That's, That's funny. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, can't keep having your money, kid. Humphrey, uh, go back home. <laughs> so John Houston was fascinated by mysterious author B. Traven, who was a recluse living in Mexico. Traven approved of the director and his screenplay by letter, obviously, and sent his. Intimate friend Hal Crows to the location to be a technical advisor and translator for a hundred and fifty dollars a week. Oh wow, wow! Uh, just looking at it now, you know Humphrey Bogart and Tim Holt and like uh, Walter Houston, like five months in Mexico, 
man, you got to figure that $3 million budget, half of it must have been on whiskey. <laughs> like, they're down in Mexico. It's like, well, we can't drink the water here, so clearly I'm just going to drink the whole way through. <laughs> uh, uh, the consensus is that Crows was, in fact, Traven, though he always denied this. So basically he sent, oh, I'll send my, my friend down there, but they thought, I'm basically sending himself, so he gets the money, oh. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Houston was not happy to query him on the subject, but then his ex-wife, Evelyn Keys, was certain Crows was the mysterious author believing that he was continually giving himself away by saying I when it should have been he and using phrases that were exactly the same as those to be found in Travin's letters to Houston. Travin was offered $1,000 a week to act as technical advisor on the film. It is known that B. Travin was a pen name and Travin's true identity remains a mystery to this day. So they really really don't know who the author of that book is. That's incredible. But also a thousand dollars a week? That's more than Kyle makes now. No, well, think about that. That's that, that's that's basically like that's almost like fourteen grand a week today, uh, roughly. Eesh. Maybe Eesh. if not more. That's almost basically fourteen grand a week in pay. You could handle that, right? <laughs> the guy made born in the month, and I make in a year. Kyle be working one week, could be done for about four, so it would be okay. Jeez. Um, so John Houston played. One of his infamous practical jokes on Bruce Bennett, who played Cody, I do believe, if I remember right, in the campfire scene in which he eats a plate of stew. Bennett knew that his character was starving, so he wolfed down the food as quickly as possible. Houston then demanded another take. And another. In both extra takes, the rapidly filling up Bennett again had to eat a large plate of stew. Unbeknownst to him, though, Houston had been happy with the first take. The cameras weren't even rolling for the second and the third take. Oh, my God. He just wanted to see how much food Bennett could uh, lower before he became too stuffed. As soon as the joke was revealed, Houston added insult to injury by calling for lunch break. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. What a a dick. (laughs) Just... Oh my gosh. Uh, That's hilarious. I'd be so mad. I'd be so furious. But you'd probably go eat again anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's me. That's yeah. what I am. Um, as production dragged on, Humphrey Bogart, who was an avid yachtsman, I didn't know he... he, he yachtsman. Was, yachtsman. Yachtsman. Uh, was uh, starting to get increasingly anxious about missing the Honolulu Classic, the Catalina to Hawaii race in which he usually took part. Despite assurances from the studio that he would be wrapped up on the picture by then, he started constantly dogging John Houston about whether he would be done in time. Eventually, Houston had had enough and grabbed Bogart by the nose and twisted hard. Bogart never asked him how long before the shooting was over again. <laughs> he just blew it reminds me like a karate kid when he's like, two, when he's like, Mr. Miyagi talks Listen, it's done when I say it's done. Man, talk about crazy treating your actors bad. Right? Wow. Yeah. A producer, Henry uh, Blanky, or Blank, had originally wanted John Garfield in uh, the Tim Holt role, but Garfield was unavailable. Ronald Reagan was then considered. Oh, my gosh. That would have changed this film's legacy by a huge degree. Yeah, it might have been better. <laughs> or worse. <laughs> Probably worse. Uh, on the depth of Walter Houston's performance, Humphrey Bogart famously said, one Houston is bad enough, but two are murder. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, man. Initially thrilled at Walter Houston's scene-stealing performance as the shoot wore on, producer Henry Blank started to have second thoughts about Houston upstaging the film star Humphrey Bogart. 
And so John Huston started to get notes from the studio telling him to tone down his father's performance. Which I think he still stole the show. Oh, yeah, almost every way. Yeah. Um, okay, okay, I'm looking up now for John Huston. Like, oh, yeah, it was his daughter. Yeah, his daughter won an Oscar. Angelica Huston, of course, from uh, Adam's family for me. Adam's family fan for me. And I guess the movie, uh, what's the movie that she was in that won the Oscar? Uh, I gotta look it up. Okay, keep going. Uh, this is one of the first American films to be made entirely on location outside of the USA. Okay, here you go, Kyle. And this eventually led to his divorce. John Huston at the time had not been married very long to Evelyn Keyes, who had constantly belittled and humiliated him on the, the location shoot. Eventually, Keyes returned to Hollywood to shoot another picture. During this time, Huston decided that he wanted to adopt a little orphan boy called Pablo, who had been hanging around the set. He basically did all the errands for him. Keyes first got wind of this when she greeted Houston and Pablo at the airport upon return from Mexico. So he basically adopted this boy without telling his wife, <laughs> which led to their ultimately Surprise. divorce. Like later on in the notes, you find out it led to their divorce. Surprise, Surprise. son. Party of three. Uh, then I found out that Pablo actually, you know, became a U.S. citizen or whatever, got married, had three children. Then he left his family and went back to Mexico and became a used car salesman. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, well, I mean, that's sad, but also hilarious. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's better, having a family or being a used car salesman? For him, it was used car salesman. Uh, okay. Oh, I got the film here. Uh, the film was Prisa's Honor, um, directed by, jo- by jo- directed by John What's Houston. What's it called? Um, Prisa's Honor. I'm going to say Prisa. Prezies? Prezies. Prezies Honor? Okay. Uh, P-R-I-Z-Z-I-S. Um, is an American comedy crime film directed by John Huston. Um, two highly skilled mob assassins who, after falling in love, are hired to kill each other. Oh, wow. It's a Mr. Mr. Smith kind of movie. Um, after, uh, after falling in love, hired to kill each other. The screenplay, co-written by Ben, is based on a 1982 novel of the same name. Hmm. And the sporting actress, of course, Angelica Houston. Uh, and so, yeah. And the third... Oh, that's also Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson and Kathleen Turner. Wow. Hmm. Add to the list. (laughs) Uh, Robert Blake actually snatched the water glass and coffee cup instrumental props from his big scene as mementos of his time on the film. So look at that. Even he was a thief back then. Exactly. (laughs) A doctor doctor was assigned to the unit in Mexico. And one night he had to attend to John Houston, who had an adverse reaction to marijuana. Having smoked it for the first time with his father, he never touched the stuff again. <laughs> with his dad. Wow. <laughs> when in Mexico. <laughs> yes. uh, this is ranked uh, by the American Film Institute in 2007 as the number 38 greatest movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bum seated near Walter Houston in the first scene in the Oso Negro flop house is Jack Holt, father of Tim Holt. Holt is not the man in the barroom scene who speaks to Humphrey Bogart and Tim Holt in the saloon, as stated by Eric Lax in his DVD commentary. That actor is Pat Flaherty. So Pat Flaherty. Okay. Cool. Long, so. Well, still got his dad in there again as well. So just a little small role there, small role moment. Um, this is cool. I found it on YouTube. I pulled it up. The Lux Radio Theater broadcast a 60-minute radio adaptation of the movie on April 18, 1949, with Humphrey Bogart and Walter Houston reprising their film's roles. It's pretty cool. Hmm. Uh, this is uh, one of Stanley Kubrick's favorite films. Also, Sam Raimi has cited this as being his favorite film. I remember, uh, let me look it up, No Country for Old Men, that director spent like a week watching that show back-to-back and falling asleep to it, and that kind of got into a writer's block when writing that film. So actually, a lot of that, a lot of that film 
Um, uh, kind of this kind of oh, it's a, the Coen Brothers. I forget which Coen brother it was, but he spent a week watching this film specifically while trying to make No Country for Old Men, and kind of like was inspired by a lot of this film too. So that's pretty fun fact there. In his Oscar acceptance speech, Walter Houston said, "Many many years ago, I brought up a boy and I said to him, son, if you ever become a writer, try to write a good part for your old man sometime." Well, by cracky, that's what he did. So if I can find his acceptance speech, I'll, I'll try to throw it in the, uh, the recording here and let's see if we can find it. It's so, be a good recording of it nowadays. Yeah. yeah. I'll throw it at the end if I can find it. If we can find it. Maybe yeah. a text speech at the very least. Um, most of the Mexican extras were paid 10 pesos a day, which was the equivalent of $2. A considerable amount for an unpo- impoverished region at that time. So Yeah, I would think actually it's probably reasonable for the time yeah. and, and place. Yeah, so... Well, okay. Not not great, but not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the windstorm at the finale was reportedly created by borrowing some jet engines. While this sounds exciting, it would seem more logical that they use the traditional method of a uh, radial aircraft engine with propeller mounted on a trailer, which would have been more available, cheaper, and wouldn't require trained personnel to operate. It would have been easier to relocate to a Mexican desert in 1948. Not to mention that jet engines were bleeding-edge technology of the post-war years uh, classified restricted to military use and absolutely none available used or surplus as would be the case of radial aircraft engines, which were a dime a dozen in post-war years. Oh, wow. So that's one of those things like, it's like you get to get a call. It's like, hey, we can't use jet engines. We can use jet engines? And that's got to be the immediate excitement thing. Like, we can do this? Well, we're doing it then. We will go out of our way to make sure we can use jet engines because that's going to be so cool. And then you get the same result. That's like, right. eh. Didn't really affect the film, but I'm sure it was a fun experience to go see a jet engine. You know. uh, Oliver Stone was at one point considering a remake, substituting drugs for gold. Oh, drugs for gold. Man, that's the thing that's kind of like... Uh, I heard some people say this film may be like racist or something like that too, which is never the like the intent of it. But I can see why people get that reading by possibly like similar reality. Like none of the bandits or anyone in the town seems to understand that the white people are going out and the gringos are going out and getting gold here in the city, and no one seems to really care that they're getting gold. When it's like, no, they should all understand too the gold rush, how valuable gold is. Well, they, if and you remember in the movie, the bandits were wanting their guns. Yeah, they wanted the guns. They wanted the pelts. Right. Uh, but they thought the gold itself was just bags of sand to weigh down the pelts so they get a heavier value for it and that's why they no but I mean even at the, at the beginning they said the bandits are you know even when they went for the train robbery they were wanting the guns and they were wanting yeah yeah you know, but they like weren't the, wanting gold or money or anything but also bandits should understand the value right. of gold and how valuable it is and it, it's weird that like no one seems like in Mexico understands the value of gold besides the gringos who came into the town so it's like one of the things like that's a little bit it, it's also kind of like the idea of Native Americans buying a huge piece of land for a, for a dollar kind of thing it's kind of plays in that kind of narrative a little bit it's like oh these these simpletons don't understand the value of the rich they right. have until the gringo comes in to exploit their land. You know, it's kind of dark in that way. <laughs> um, this was an inspiration for Paul Thomas Anderson when he was making There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Uh, yes, I did. And that's a classic film as well. It also, like, once again, I was doing oil for gold in that case, too. The new gold, uh, as many people would kind of call it, or black gold in the time. You know, uh, John Houston played a prank on Humphrey Bogart. In the scene where he has to reach under a rock for hidden gold and is told that an extremely venomous gila monster had crawled there, Houston put a mousetrap where he had to reach. Bogart, acting appropriately as if a gila monster actually was under the rock, jumped several feet backwards when the mousetrap snapped on his finger. <laughs> you ever had one of those snap on your fingers? It hurts so bad. I have. It hurts, it hurts so, bad. so bad. It hurts so bad. I'd oh be so mad I'd God. probably walk off the set, dude. Oh, my. I, I just would have beat him silly. <laughs> 
All right, Kyle. <laughs> don't laugh too hard, but here you go. Okay. As with most of the Mexican actors selected from a, the local population, Alfonso Bedoya's uh, atrocious pronunciation of English proved to be a bit of a problem. For an example, horseback came out as horseback. <laughs> horseback. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. And oh, while we're on the that. subject, here we go. Uh, John Houston and Humphrey Bogart played a prank on Alfonso Bedoya. The actor seemed to have a hollow leg when it came time for Mills, gorging himself at every occasion with the food that Warner Brothers provided for the cast and crew. Bedoya took his Mills very seriously, always being first when it came time to eat. Houston and Bogart took notice of this and decided to fix Bedoya by affixing strong glue to his saddle and stationary stuffed horse. Just before the lunch bell rang, Houston called Bedoya over to shoot some close-up takes. He hoped, or he hopped into the saddle. Houston shot a few scenes, and dinner was called. Everyone but Bedoya hit the foot spread, or the food spread. Bedoya struggled to get off the horse, but was held firmly in place by the glue. Bedoya subsequently barraged a frantic sobbing and caterwauling so annoyed Houston that he soon ordered Bedoya's pants cut away from the saddle as the actor rushed off to stuff his face. <laughs> That's Kyle. Cut my pants off. I'm still eating. <laughs> I will get there. I will find him. And I will eat it. I will eat it. <laughs> the man had a... Per- it just seems like there was a lot of practical jokes going on in this. Uh, it seems like a lot of fun. Like... Uh, and they had to. And they were. Uh, they were. They were off in Mexico, in like in a country that is kind of like bandit country, even for the time period. I'm sure, like they had to be close knit and having fun together. Otherwise, they'd lose their minds in right. that five months, especially. Yeah. Uh, just as John Houston was starting to shoot scenes in Tampico, Mexico, the production was shut down inexplicably by the local government. The cast and crew were at a complete loss as to understand why, since the residents and government of Tampico had been so generous in days past. It turns out that a local newspaper printed a false story that accused the filmmakers of making a production that was unflattering to Mexico. Houston soon found out why the newspaper skewered him and his production in the funny papers. When he wanted to do anything in Tampico, it was customary to slide a little money towards the editor of the newspaper, something the crew failed to do. Fortunately, two of of Houston's associates, Diego Riviera and Miguel Cavera Rubis, Rubis, perfect pronunciation. That was a Kyle. Kyle (laughs) uh, Went to bat for the director with the president of Mexico. The the libelous accusations were dropped, and a few weeks later, the editor of the newspaper was called in the wrong bed and shot dead by a jealous husband. Wow. Cool drama. <laughs> that would have been a movie. Man, I, I, that's a movie you could make today about the real-life drama about the making of The Treasure of the Madre. It's something I would love to watch. Or a documentary. Oh, God, they make a documentary of this film. Uh, Maybe Rob- it already is. I should watch it. Probably. Robert Redford named this as his all-time favorite film. Cool. Robert Redford has good taste. Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan had also cited this film as one of his personal favorites. And also, you could probably see a lot. that There's a whole lot of the treasure in the Sierra Madre in Breaking Bad. I can think of it. You know, something about human greed and <laughs> how they be the folly of man. <laughs> uh, Kyle, this is right up your alley. This film is heavily referenced to the add-on Dead Money from the 2010 video game Fallout New, New Vegas. Vegas. That's right. I played that DLC and learned about this film through that DLC, too, because it's the Sierra Madre Casino where they go get gold in a place where you cannot get gold. <laughs> and it's about a man consumed by greed. Yes, it was very on the nose. I'm a kid of that time period. <laughs> uh, in the Warner Brothers anime short, 8-Ball, 
uh, Bunny, which we talked about earlier, which Kyle's going to put on the Facebook when we release this. Uh, Bugs Bunny has multiple encounters with Fred C. Dobbs, who asks if the rabbit can help out a fellow American who's down on his luck. However, Dobbs is only able to get two coins out of Bugs. From the American tourist played by John Houston in the Treasure Sierra Madre, Dobbs is able to get at four. least four. Yeah. Yes. At least four. And uh, it, it's a love of the character, too. I love it. Like, he, he always goes, he, he finds another white guy and he says, Can you help out a fellow American? And that's, he, he, he appeals to their patriotism every time he, he asks for money. It's not just help out or beg in the streets in any kind of way. It's like, I got to appeal to their American disabilities, their patriotism to help me out as the right. American way. And it's such a, a specific kind of manipulation he does. And kind of like it's a tip off that maybe Dobbs is kind of a, a shady character to some degree. And if you want to see the famous line of the stinking bad. Just parodied in Blazing Saddles. Uh, just fast forward to the one hour, 12 minutes, and 30 second mark where the villain is recruiting his minions and tries to give bad guy badges the banditos. Was there a reference to that in Three Amigos as well? Or did we. I don't think there was, no. I'm thinking of the movie now. Like, surely there's got to be a reference to three. There's got to be a reference to Treasure of Sierra Madre and Three Amigos somewhere. I just got to find it. Um, <laughs> tigers are mentioned many times throughout the film. While there are no true tigers in Mexico, Tigris or tigris, is a common Mexican term for mountain lion, cougars, and jaguars. I believe it's also one of their um, soccer team's uh, mascots. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Just, <laughs> there's wild animals out that will kill you. Right. <laughs> that's, you know, that's a general impression. Uh, yeah. John Huston's original film depiction of Dobbs' death was more graphic, as it was in the book, than the one that eventually made it onto the screen. When Goldhat strikes Dobbs with his machete... Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Better Spoiler alert. Dobbs yeah. is killed by this. <laughs> uh, Dobbs is decapitated. Houston shot Dobbs' fake head rolling down into the water hole. There's a quick shot of Gold Hat's accomplices reacting to Dobbs' heads rolling down that remains in the film. In the very next shot, you see the water rippling where it rolled in. The 1948 censors would have not allowed that, so Houston camouflaged the cut shot with a repeat of shot of Gold Hat striking Dobbs. Warner Brothers' publicity department released a statement that Humphrey Bogart was disappointed the scene couldn't be shown in all of its graphic glory. Bogart's reaction, what's wrong with showing a guy getting his head cut off? There should be more violence on TV, I say. <laughs> so Kyle, that is the treasure Sierra Madre. What is your thoughts, feelings, critiques? I really love this film. This is a, one of Humphrey Bogart's best performances. Um, this is one of John Hudson's best movies, one of Ralph Hudson's best movies, and also Tim Holt and everyone like that. Everyone involved in this film gives a stellar performance. Um, the plot is good. The messages is good. And uh, overall, this is just an excellent film. This is a film that I feel like can really be entertaining to contemporary audiences as well. You know, uh, as much as I kind of like pretend to be like a serious film buff, seeing any films before 1970 can be sometimes be challenging to a lot of people, even to me. And so, but this film kind of stood the test of time in a lot of ways where like, I really like this film a lot. So for me, this film was like a... Like, Nine out of ten territory. I could probably gonna watch it a few more times in my life and uh, really enjoy it a lot. And uh, I think there's a lot of cool stuff that I still think about each time I watch this film, and has a surprising depth to it that I really appreciate. So, yeah, my overall thoughts is this film is great and absolutely deserves watching for any film fan and all. So that's my thoughts, Jimbo. How do you feel about the Treasure of Sierra Madre? Well, here's here's what we haven't touched. on. I hate it. No, <laughs> well, no, no. Here's what we haven't touched on. This film is not just about guys going to look for gold. I guess that is the central plot of this. It's actually a lot deeper than this. I think it shows uh, the greed that people can get into. Um, it shows like the gold fever, if you will, because Bogart gets it really bad. 
I mean, really bad. And even even uh, Curtin, um, when the uh, the mine collapses. You know, he's going to leave Bogart in there to die just to take his part of the gold, you see. But then he turns around and helps him. So you can see a little bit in his in his yeah. character, too. Um, and I think it really hits home when they meet Cody. And uh, basically, they get in a shootout with bandits and Cody ends up dying. And Because Cody had just said, hey, I'll be, there's three things you can do. You can either bring me in as part of your partner. We'll split it four ways. You can kill me. Yeah, he said, or what was the other one? I or think? let him go, um, with the implication that like he runs the risk of reporting to them to the police because the they're, right. they're they're not they're not doing this on the books or anything like that. Gold's rocking on the books, so, and uh, and they are inferring that like if um, if uh, Cody reported them, he would have a twenty five percent claim to whatever the re- the authorities recovered. So if he reported them, he would get literally his twenty five percent share immediately. Without their consent at all, so you right. get a quarter of so, whatever they made. So yeah. when the bandits come to take their try to take their guns, they end up getting this gunfight, and Cody ends up getting shot and killed. And they find a letter on him that is from his wife, and it's like, "My dearest Cody, you know, uh, me and your son miss you." Uh, or he's writing to her, right? Or no, no, it's the to, wife writing yeah. to him, and yeah. she says, "You know, you told me that this would be the last time that." Uh, hopefully, you know, so so to me, you've seen in Cody's life that, number one, he has the gold fever so bad that he's abandoned his family more than once, and now he's out here again and uh, ends up costing him his life. And yeah. it, it it hits Curtin really bad, and it's Bogart bad, but Curtin's like, hey, look, we should still give 25% of our thing to this Cody's fiance or whatever she mm-hmm. was. And Bogart's like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> you know, he's basically, I'm not giving 25% of mine, which... I yeah. understand, um, but come to find out at the end of the movie, when the bandits uh, basically um, Bogart um, basically steals all of it, shoots shoots Curtin. You mm. think he's dead, but he crawls away and, and survives. And he takes all these to the city. He's going to cash it in or whatever. And it's got they're covered in pelts. Uh, and he finally finds water, and he goes down to this water, and he's sitting there, and he's drinking with the the uh, burrows. Yeah. And he looks in the reflection in the water, and it's uh, the gold hat, the band, one of the bandits that he got into it with, and two of his accomplices. And uh, basically, they kill they kill him, and they start. I like where they're fighting over his shoes and everything. You know what I mean? It's yeah. funny. And they get him one and punches the other one in the water, but. They start going through the pelts. They're like, ah, oh, and then they see these bags, and they think it's just sand, and they start breaking them open, and the, the, basically the gold in this movie looks like sand, you know, unrefined gold or whatever. Yeah. And so when Houston and – or Hudson. Uh, Howard, Howard. Howard and, and Curtin. Cody. Cody. No. Oh, Curtin. sorry. Howard yeah, dead. Curtin. Yeah, sorry. Curtin. When Howard and Curtin chase after him, and they, they find, um, find it, they're trying to find their gold. They tell him that, hey, Dobbs is dead. Um, and the kid's like, hey, where's you know, where's the rest of the stuff? Because they're looking at the pelts. They see the pelts. Yeah. And, they and then they explain to the bandits they just threw away the sand because yeah. they thought it was sand. And they went out there, and there's this big windstorm, and it sweeps all the gold away, and they just go into a laughing, hysterical fit mm-hmm. because they ended up with nothing. Yeah. Except the one guy, uh, uh, Howard's going back because he's, like, saved a kid from dying, and he's going to be living like a king down there anyway. But <laughs> yeah. I thought it was very interesting, too, that um, they made you dig your own graves. And then, you know, they went to the firing squad, the three bandits. But if you remember, uh, they, they dig their holes, they go line up, and then uh, you see the gold hat roll away. And he's like, hey, hey. <laughs> he goes over and he picks up his hat, put, and also, you know, puts it on off screen, and then they shoot him in front of the firing squad. I thought that was really funny, too. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, I think this film's much more deeper than just a good Western. I think the greed aspect of it... Um, no. It's very... Um, I think Humphrey Bogart has some really incredibly like nuanced dialogue too, especially with his character traits, because like he doesn't, for the standards of 1940s, like he doesn't seem like a bad person in many respects. But there's like so many small details, especially in his dialogue and his actions, that infer like he actually is kind of be the one to be the one portraying. Um, there's a little example like Dobbs is the first one who's willing to like give up when they go in the first the ghost prospecting when they go ten days on the walk and then start working to get gold before they get the gold. He's the first one willing to give up. Um, and it has to get um, both inspiration from Curtin and Howard to actually stick with it. Uh, there's also a thing where when um, when Cody shows up the first time and they talk about what to do with him, they have a debate to kill him. And Dobbs is the first one to leap at, we have to kill him. I, I don't even want the idea to share money and all kind of stuff. And that's kind of a turning point for him where he realizes he doesn't want to share any of the gold at all. When the idea of Cody wanting to come in and share some of the gold they make forward, he, that immediately kind of tr- tricks him to the point where it's like, actually, I don't want to share any of the gold at all. And that's where he gets the mindset of that too. Well, not only that, but if you remember... Uh the, the, the little kid that's holding this winning ticket, he got an extra $200. So he's actually put up front more money than the other two. Yeah. And then, but later on, he's like, hey, you know. He holds I it over. Put, he holds it over. Curtin's uh, head. Curtin's head. Yeah, he's like, yeah. look, I should be the leader. I put more in here. You did. And yeah. you see Curtin go, and he grabs like a little bag of gold. He throws it out. He said, here it is, and here's with interest. And if you watch, he takes it, and he just dumps it out and throws it out. Yeah, it's like, I just wanted to make a point. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, Bogart's character is very... Uh, very deep if you set, stop and think about it. Yeah, uh, and you can see the progression of how, like... It gets worse. You can even see, like, at the very beginning when he's talking about, like, oh, I, I know, like, I'm homeless now, but I would know when to quit soon enough and get out when the getting, when, I, when I know I had enough. But as soon as it gets more, that's when we're like... But, like, you can even see that even he believes it when he says it, that, like, I know I would get out in time. I wouldn't let greed get to me. I would get out and take my money and go home, and I'd be all right, too. And there's also a little thing, too, like, when um, when um, when Curtin and Howard, like, brag about what they're going to do. Like, what are you going to do for your share? Howard's like, oh, I'm old. I'm going to retire. No problem at all. And then Curtin's like, oh, I'm going to start a, a peach farm and raise peaches, which kind of ends up where he gets, ends up in the film at the end of the film. Um, but then Bogart's like, oh, I'm going to be just a rich slum. I'm going to I'm gonna buy women and fancy food and I'll just gorge myself and just generally be, like, a terrible rich person, basically. Um, so that's like, it just it kind of like it, everything kind of goes forward like you realize more and more that he's got greed in his heart and that's a problem he has going forward and even early on in the film where like he doesn't even look at the person's face when he asks them for money so he asks the same person three times in a row without realizing it because he just sticks out his hand away for the money that actually like in his mindset he's always obsessed with getting more money that's all his that's basically a big part of his entire life and he's been so down in the dust because only only thing he has is his greed and that's where they end up in the film where um, his greed ends up being the death of him when he gets murdered by the bandits because he's he's separated everyone else in his life that cared about him that moment, you know, both Howard and Curtin. And because of that, he has no one to defend him, you know, in that in that last moment. So that's kind of cool, too. And then also uh, Howard and, and Curtin's character are also really great, too, because um, Curtin, you know, he says um, when, when Cody's killed, he says he volunteers to take his portion and, and pay... Uh, 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 Cody's wife a portion of the fee too because he just wants to be he wants to he, he feels like that's the honorable thing to do and I um, think I think Howard's at the very end of the film when they've lost all their gold he said look he said take my portion of the pelts that we sell mm-hmm. he said go see the Cody's wife or fiance whatever she was yeah. Give it to her. Yeah. And I, I think the implication is there, although, like, a little bit more hazy because, like, they were going to kill the guy right before <laughs> he ended up getting killed by the bandits. Um, but the idea of, like, oh, um, they mentioned um, Cody's wife in the letter mentions they actually have a farm already and has a family. So it's one of those things where, like, 
I think the implication is that Curtin's just going to walk into a full family life with a farm and basically the dream of what he actually wanted when he had the money in the first place. Mm. That he's going to walk in the Curtin's life, uh, that Curtin's going to walk in the Cody's life and basically take over that whole family and farm and then help out the family and live the life he actually dreamed of with the gold. So, like, but in this case, he doesn't need the gold to get it. So that's what he's going to do with his life there forward. And uh, Howard, too, um, because he takes the honorable path and helping out a sick boy in a Mexican village. Howard is made like their village elder and uh, basically their their medicine man. To their legislator, yeah, yeah, basically made their legislator, basically the leader of their village, basically like that. And that entire time, um, because of that, because he just has the knowledge benefits of old age, um, he is basically made their leader and treated like royalty in their village, where like he's fed well, he's given a nice place to sleep, he's given everything he wanted if he had the gold in the first place. But in this case, he doesn't need the gold because he has the love of the people around him is the part of the thing that is fulfilling in his life. And so he's getting everything he needs all because he knew to let go of the money. Mm-hmm. And Humphrey Bogart is the only person who paid because he didn't know when to let go of the money. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's the kind of the failing measure of this whole film. That's what really makes it so dang so, good. So I guess what we're getting to Kyle I took is... the podcast again there. Sorry. So, no. so I guess <laughs> <laughs> what we're getting to is Kyle empty your wallet give it to me exactly exactly, 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 exactly. <laughs> don't worry don't worry I got he's like don't worry I don't have no <laughs> <laughs> well, let me get those two moths that flew out of there exactly. oh I'm sorry you guys I am Avatar <laughs> 1 instead of 2 that's why I am living that life yeah. <laughs> so Kyle where are you going to rank this on a scale of 1 to 10 then uh, oh I think I, I think I said a strong 9 actually I think it's a, I think it's a 9 I, I think did I say 8 before I don't know if it's a 9 now that's for sure yeah. after talking about that there and talking it's probably an 8, 5, 9 I mean easily yeah, um, yeah. It, it absolutely deserves his place in one of the best movies of all time and then and and you know you bogart man when he starts talking to himself you really think this guy is crazy mm-hmm. well you remember when he's like well oh, maybe, yeah. he said well maybe i should have shot him again well maybe i should have buried took his clothes off and buried him maybe i should have dug <laughs> it's a, a little thing. bit cliche oh, but the, I mean, the coyotes will come and eat him and the buzzards he's like but yeah. then the buzzards will be flying around and they'll see him you know it just went on and on and on and he's yeah. wasting so much time then he finally goes back and he's gone and it's it's crazy so that's one of the things i feel like a more modern film would have more nuanced ways of showing him losing his mind gradually versus just like a very much like on the page like i need to talk out loud to myself about all the ways i'm definitely going crazy but it was awesome <laughs> I, I thought it was really good well, it's entertaining that, so. but also it's like it's a little heavy-handed too yeah but yeah i appreciate this film but um anyways i think that's kind of like that's you know we're, we're drawing to a close now <laughs> yeah well um i think that's going to be about it for the treasure of sierra madre if you want to follow us on the social media we are the tragedy of cinema podcast group on facebook uh you want to reach out we are the tragedy of cinema at gmail.com uh we have tiktok uh, yep you gotta leave us a review, and if you leave a review about the Weekend of Bernie episode, I will cover Weekend of Bernie's too. We gotta get the, that the, done. The funny thing is, Kyle, Weekend of Bernie's is getting ready to come out like today instead of July fifth when this comes out. So yeah, so yeah, but it's a reminder in case they don't post <laughs> a they review during that two, that week long period. <laughs> okay, if they do that. I True will. transparency. We were supposed to record another episode today, but Kyle watched Weekend of Bernie's too anyway, so he's ready for Weekend of Bernie's too. But exactly. that wasn't the movie I'm we were going to cut. Fully prepared. Because I'm a fool. Yeah. I bought Avatar 1 when I meant to buy Avatar 2, and I watched Weekend at Bernie's 2 when I should have been watching a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, Many mistakes hey, in the past. It years. happens to the best of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut.